Amen. Well, man, thank you guys for gathering with us here at Mission Church. My name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Mission. And if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me if you haven't already to the book of Romans. Uh, chapter 15 is where we're going to be uh, hanging out today um, and exploring and continuing a sermon series. It's been interesting as we kind of come to a close here. Um, in the next week or the week after that, we'll kind of put a, a, a ribbon around this this package that has been uh, the book of Romans. And over the last several years, I've done several series going through that, but kind of really focusing here on those last few chapters on what it means to be a gospel-centered church. In the book of Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us he's going to get real practical, that in view of all of these things, in view of the last um, 11 chapters in view of all of that that's been happening doctrinal, doctrinally and theologically in our lives through that as Paul has been writing this letter there are some very practical ways that the gospel should play out in all of our lives and today what we're going to focus on what does the gospel centered church and unity look like and what is the fruit of that unity. So I'm going to ask that you just, man, pray for me this morning. I'm going to pray for you even while I'm preaching. We're just going to ask that God would just really um, help us with this idea of what is unity within the church. All right. Now, as a pastor in the 14 years or so of doing this, one thing that I've learned is this, uh, or a question for you is, do you know who are the most committed members to any congregation? I'll tell you their names. Every congregation, the most committed members to that congregation are these things. Sin, Satan, and death. They show up every Sunday even when the Christians don't. They're here. They wrestle here. They, they come to this place every week. They show up every time we gather, whether it's at a mission community group, whether it's on a Sunday morning, they are always here. And what's interesting about this is that, and sadly as well, is that within many congregations that we've been looking at this idea of really wrestling through weak and strong and, and the, the conflict that can sometimes arise in church over those issues is that if we look across the board, that there are, are many cases where sin, Satan, and death works into the pastor and uh, he you know, has immorality or embezzled or something and the church splits. And how sad this must be um, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of that city. Um, I've recently read or read several times that over 4,000 churches close every year. Many of those cases are because of something that happens within the pastor, sensate and death. But a lot of those cases have to do with what's going on within its membership or people who claim to be a part of that body of believers. See, sin, Satan, and death are silent but deadly assassins and with stealth-like accuracy have a way of ninja-like working their ways into the life of the church. Sin, Satan, and death. One of its greatest weaknesses is to convince the church that, living, they're, that they're living faithfully when they're really not. 
This is a major, major issue. We can see even glimpses of this idea in the scriptures themselves. If, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, flip over to the right to the book of Revelation. And I'm not about to pull out charts or draw pictures of dragons and women riding them. But if you're to look at the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is written to seven specific churches. Okay? Look at this in chapter 2. It says this in verse 2. I know your works. This is God speaking to this church. Um, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I mean, think about this for a moment. You're a church. You've been existing for a while. We can learn about the church of Ephesus through Paul's writing and through the book of Acts. We have seen God move in a mighty, mighty way there. And God is saying, hey, you guys are are doing really well. Imagine the pride that would swell enough us as a church if God was to literally speak to us and how good we were doing. Then you keep reading. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do not uh, do the works you did at first. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, uh, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. So you see this conflict. It's like, man, we're we're doing awesome. We're enduring these things. We're testing the spirits. We're looking at these people who are coming to be claimed and followers of Jesus Christ. But yet, we're, we're discerning here if they're biblically and following after Jesus and speaking about Jesus. And so you begin to swell and then all of a sudden God says to you, but you need to repent because of why? You have forsaken your first love. See, these people um, in many ways were lost. Alright? And yet did not realize it. Imagine hopping in the car and traveling for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles hours upon hours upon hours upon hours, only to realize, though you believed you were going in the right direction, that you were really not. Um, I was on a a mission trip to New Orleans with um, Kyle and his wife Lauren and a few other people, and I had a young single guy, a college student at the time, Um, he was the navigator, and he was sitting next to me, and his whole responsibility was to tell me where to turn, all right? And for quite some time, traveling back to Bowling Green, we drove in the wrong direction. Believing wholeheartedly, we were heading back to the bluegrass. Only to realize that we were lost. As I mentioned to you last week, the church is made up of a diverse group of people who have influenced by a number of teachers, philosophies, and ways of doing life. The church should be an example Uh, to the world of how a diverse group of people can find unity and purpose in a common truth and practice. And in many ways, the church of Rome is being faithful. But they have fallen into disunity, being cynical, grumbling, 
complaining, arguing over issues that just simply didn't matter. So were there good things about this church? Yes. Paul even says, your faith is spread across the known world. There are great things about this church, and yet simultaneously, there are things within this body of believers that they aren't getting right, and everybody is just sort of ignoring them, and division is creeping into this body of believers by sin, Satan, and death. Because it typically doesn't work through big experiences. It typically is the silent whispers of gossip and these sorts of things that begin to cause major, major issues. The moment we as a church begin to make it all about us and our personal preferences is the moment that we begin to drift away from the purposes of God. Our prayer is that in every one of our gatherings here, whether it's on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night in a missional community group, that our our room, these rooms, would be filled with three different types of people. Our prayer today is that this room would be filled with unbelievers. Our prayer today is that this room would be filled um, with new believers. And our prayer for this room and for our missional community groups is that they would also be filled with mature believers. And yet this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we pray that we would see the Holy Spirit begin to take the non-believer into being a new believer and that new believer into mature believers and that we would continue to see this kind of cycle taking place over and over and over and over again. And yet, whenever you have a room filled with those kinds of people, that great diversity, which is a beautiful thing, also brings struggles that you have to learn how to navigate through. When we see this in Romans chapter 15, he tells us this in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. If you have your own Bible today, I want you to mark and underline the word bear. All right? Bear. Ladies and gentlemen, this word here does not simply mean that you need to tolerate people within the community of faith. All right? It's not just saying you need to put up with them because I love them, but I just don't like them. Right? Isn't that what we say in the South? And I, God, I can't hate them. God told me I can't hate them. I got to love them. I just can't like them. I don't like to hear their laugh. It makes me want to throw them in my mouth. All right? I mean, we say all sorts of things about people, and we typically end it with bless their hearts, right? And yet, the Bible is calling us specifically to bear with people that are weak in their faith. That this is going to help with unity. The term there literally means to carry their burden, to carry their weakness, to come alongside of them. It is to walk alongside someone who is wrestling with their faith, wrestling in sin, help walk alongside of them until that person, through the power of the Holy Spirit, realizes that this, whatever they're packing compared to God's glory, isn't worth it, and they drop it. I've seen this happen as a parent. You ever had this happen? We are in a place where we're trying to get Ava to help us unload the car after groceries. Um, because I have a tendency to load up one entire arm and not have anything in this hand. Anybody else do that? It's really weird. Why don't I load up both hands? But anyway, so we're like, all right, everybody help us 
get the groceries or you're trying to leave somewhere and everybody needs to pack something out to the car. And typically as parents, we have a tendency to lose patience. We'll stand at the door and we're like, hey, we're waiting on you. Come on. We're waiting on you. We're waiting on you. We're waiting on you to bring whatever it is that you are supposed to bring to the door. That's what we do a lot of times in church. We get frustrated. We show a lack of patience with people when the Bible is calling us not to be yelling out from the door, losing our patience of why aren't you coming, but to literally go to people who are wrestling and struggling and help them to pack whatever it is to wherever we need to go. This mentality of what Paul is getting here is a true act of service. Service. If we're going to have unity in view of the gospel, we should have unity. And to achieve unity within your home or within this body of believers means that you must lay down your personal preference and serve your brothers and sisters at the, even to the point of giving up some of your liberties so that they can have freedom in their faith. When we look at this, and we're looking at this idea of wrestling through all of this, um, you know, just being a diverse community of faith, it is important for us to stand, if we're going to be servants, that this corporate gathering, what's a missional community group, or what we do on Sunday mornings, that all of these things isn't about what you get from it primarily, but it is what you give to it. See, we live in a culture that is consumed with consumerism. And we even look at this from the idea of the view of what can the church give me? This is what we call church shopping, right? You go to different churches trying to find out which one will best fit your needs. Um, I listen to a radio station that has preaching on it whenever I'm in the car, and it forces me to listen to guys I don't normally have on my podcast. And one day I was listening to it, and the guy was talking about a very similar subject that I'm in today, and he said, um, after the service, we had this new visitor come up to us, and this gentleman was extremely nice, and, and he said, you know, hey, Pastor so-and-so, my name is so-and-so, and we're here visiting your church today, and we're trying to find a congregation to commit to and to be a part of, and we were just wondering, what kind of things does your church offer? And very politely, the pastor said, well, you know, we're, we're thankful um, for you coming to visit us today. But before I tell you about what we kind of provide here as a group of believers, my first question before we go in any further is what do you have to give this place? See, it's a changing of the mentality. Church is not primarily about what you get from it. It is what you generously and sacrificially give to it. And yet that's not the mindset of most of the people within um, our culture. See, we've got to move from being a community of consumers to being a community of conceivers. There's a major difference there. A consumer is taking something. A conceiver is giving life to something. And this should be the desire of our hearts as we serve one another. Paul is illustrating this in Romans chapter 15, verses 1, when he tells the church at Rome, those of you who are mature are obligated, you're obligated, commanded in, indebted to serving the weaker brothers and sisters 
in Christ. A question that every one of us must ask ourselves this morning and every day is, are you using people or are you serving people? When it comes to the body of believers, when it comes to the church, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to your children, when it comes to your friends, are you freely laying down your freedoms, your time, your talent, your treasure, your abilities, whatever is going on within your lives, we have a tendency in the American church to really compartmentalize what it means to be the church, what it means to be a body of believers, what it means to be a, a, a very Christian, a very follower of Jesus, when the Bible is telling us over and over and over to lay down our lives, to lose our lives for Jesus and for other people, not to use people, but to serve people. Living not to please ourselves. That goes against the American dream, doesn't it? Living not to please yourself. Not going out to eat all the time so that you can give more to charities, to your church, to give more to other people. Feeding people, serving people, not just what we like to do at church, and that's, we like to have these ministry fairs, right? And we like to tell you about all the ways that you can serve the church, and you kind of sign up and you serve in children's ministry, or you serve in this area, or you serve in this area. That is one aspect of what Jesus is saying here. But literally, coming down and laying down your lives for one another within the church. I often have heard and hear brothers and sisters in Christ say statements like this. See if you've ever heard somebody say like this. Well, this is just who I am. You can take me or you can leave me. I don't really care if you don't like me. I don't really care if you don't like what I do or if you love what I do. But I, I'm simply going to do what I'm going to do. See, I want you to know that is a whisper from hell itself. That you are going to do just whatever you're going to do. That with, again, I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ who make statements like this. And yet when we compare that in view of that, is this the true attitude of the believer? See, we should be coming here every time we gather on a Sunday morning, every time we gather in a home or on a mission community group of men, what, what can I give these people? I used to go to a church potluck. I still go to them. But this one particular one, there was pretty much this person. They were always going to be first in line to eat at the church potluck. I mean, they would push, shove. Sister was going to eat. She was going to be up there first. And yet, Paul even talks about this whole mentality in the book of Corinthians. That people were showing up early to eat the communion, which typically included an entire meal, and even getting drunk off the wine. And when everybody else showed up, there wasn't anything to get drunk off of or to eat. And Paul says, this should not be the mentality of the church. See, but this is what we do, and this is how it gets really practical for us. We, we hate things like setting up for mission. It's the last thing on our list. And yet, it is a true act of worship. It should be the desire. Man, we get to participate. We get to serve. I mean, it's sometimes within our churches, it's like pulling teeth to try to even get people to sign up for those different ministries. But I'm looking way beyond that. 
What I'm saying is, man, what does your Monday look like in serving the brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you so compartmentalized and an idol, you've made an idol of your time to the point where your entire lives aren't opened up to your brothers and sisters? See, let's face it, or I'll face it, I'll confess to you. I'm, I'm cool with serving people as long as it's convenient for me. And yet, the Scripture calls us to so much more than those things. Consider these Scriptures, alright? In the book of Acts, we see the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, uh, when, we, when Jesus is ascended, we kind of have this idea that there are thousands of people following Jesus. And it's not true. There's maybe um, 120 people when He ascends. After three years of dedicated ministry, thousands of people following after Him, He dies, He's resurrected, and only 120 people are faithful. The Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, on like fire, like a mighty rushing wind, lands upon these believers, and they begin to proclaim in all languages the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 people were called into repentance and began to follow Jesus on that day. And yet, what is the direct response of what happens after a mighty move of God? Well, it tells us there in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I don't have time to read all of this, but we've read it a lot here at this church. We keep going back to it. But they begin to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers and, and sign. In verse 45, it says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And what would it be like to be a part of a community of believers who lived in that mindset. One that we were going to gather in some way daily. Maybe not everyone, but there's constantly daily breaking of bread with one another. Also, that there should be no person who would have a need. Now this is just a hypothetical thing, but I was thinking about this this week. What would it be like to be a part of a group of believers? And I understand you'd have to have Stipulation, this would put a whole new concept into church covenant membership. But what if every one of us united together to eradicate each other's debt? What would that look like? Now, if we, through the power of grace and giving, eradicate your debt and you go back into debt, then that's on you. <laughs> All right? But what would it look like? No one would have need. Imagine what you could do like in your family. Imagine where you could go, and I'm not just talking about Disney World, but I'm talking about the freedom to go take the gospel to foreign lands and to unreached people groups because you then had the funds to be able to do it. See, I think all those sounds like pipe dreams, and yet I think that they're biblical beauties. They're glimpses into what is taking place here. Later on in chapter 4 it says this in 32 through 34. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And the great power of the apostles were giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and distributed each um, 
to each as they had need. Thus Joseph was also called the Apostles Barnabas, which also means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the Apostles' feet. Serving of every aspect of their life. Time, talent, treasure. Not just Sunday morning, not just Wednesday night, but a, a true, man, everything that I have is yours. But a true giving sacrificially of everything within us for the greater good of not only your spouse, not only your closest of friends, but of everyone within that community of faith. True unity will come when we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're talking about life, we're talking about Everything. Everything. I, I have several scriptures here. I can't read them all, but I am going to read some of them. Um, Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. And Jesus called them and said to them, um, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. John thirteen fourteen. If you, uh, if I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. Feet. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Zephaniah 3.9, you may probably didn't even know that was in the Bible. Uh, Zephaniah 3.9, then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. In the foxholes of war, ladies and gentlemen, if, if you are for you, then people die. But if you are for us, a lot more people will win and live. Mission Church, may we be a people that is filled with a diverse array of races and political parties and all of these understandings. Why? Because we're willing to serve one another and be united in the cause of Christ. That that is what keeps us together. Romans 12, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it says to offer our bodies a living sacrifice. It goes on to say um, to, to love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What if we reflected these truths? See, I think we are so consumed with just not going to hell that we miss all of Scripture and what God's really about. We just don't want to go to hell. And yet, is hell in the Scriptures? Yes. Are people going to end up there? Yes. But the main drive of this scripture, the main drive of knowing Jesus, isn't so that you and others don't go to hell. It's that you know God and reflect who God is and how God acts upon this earth 
And I can think of no greater servant than the person and work of Jesus. What if we as Mission Church um, desired, longed to be in such a Christ-centered community that it looked actually like what the Bible shows us? Um, some of you were able to go with us. I wish all of you w- would have been able to go with us because this Friday night when we went down to Nashville and went to Emmanuel Baptist or Emmanuel Church, and we listened to Rosaria Butterfield um, speak um, for a few hours there, and ladies and gentlemen, it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, she is a former uh, homosexual. Um, Jesus has radically changed her life. But I want you to know what the main drive of what she was talking about was not homosexuality. It was the state of the church. See, one of the things that she gleaned from being a part of that community is, is the, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender um, population that is rapidly growing. You know why it's so popular? It's because those people get community. Their homes are always open to one another. They're always loving and welcoming of other people to come and to be a part of that. And that's one of the most attractive things about this community. Because I would, I would continue that they are doing much better at true sacrificial community than the church is. So one of the things that she kept talking to us about is that um, she kept saying that, um, she even said this, I'll give you a quote. She says, if you're a part of a missional community, she said small group, but I'll use our terms. If you're a part of a missional community and are playing it safe, you are cheating yourself and the group. See, these missional communities, these times together, this random knock on the door on a Monday when you ain't supposed to be in my house, sort of conversations of dealing with sin, Satan, and death in your life, these should be places from the pastors to the first person that comes, a place of vulnerability, a place of sharing, a place of truly caring for one another. What would it look like as she challenged us on Friday that our homes are open all the time to brothers and sisters in Christ. Our single brothers and sisters in Christ in this room should never be lonely because they should always have a place in our homes. And yet most of us, well, we, we don't want to do that because it's going to mess with my schedule. And I am OCD about a schedule. I like scheduling. I like formality. I don't like surprises. Yet the gospel, to be faithful to it, is a constantly opening up your lives to struggles, to doubts, to people within this community of believers. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you, in case you haven't noticed, we had no bells and whistles here. I was talking to another church planner in our town this week, and he poised it so well. I wish I had thought of it, because I would have tweeted it, so you'd have been impressed. Um, He said, our church plant is everything our community doesn't want. And I said, bingo! Come to a dirty school that we have to vacuum and clean up before anybody ever gets here. All right? No flashing lights. We do not have a fogger in this church. Coffee is Folgers. And we've already broken two coffee pots. That's why we haven't had it in the last two weeks. All right? 
let me put it clear this up in case I get blamed. I didn't break them. You broke them. Somebody out there broke them. You left water in them, and it gets cold, and that trailer froze it, broke the seals. We've done it twice. All right? Our cross is falling apart this morning. That arm over there was dangling. There is nothing romantic about this. There's nothing sexy about being a church plant. Nothing. But if you're looking for bells and whistles for your family, all right, in a youth group, or you can jump down a slide into a pit of balls after you get baptized, not here. They won't let us put us in. We tried. All right? I mean, there's, there's nothing... Our culture, what, what are they wanting, though? They want to romanticize everything. And please hear me. I'm not saying it's bad that our other brothers and sisters have those things. I don't want to sound like the angry church planner who's jealous of those things. Okay? But what I am saying, at the end of the day, even if we have all of those things, but we love not God, and we have forsaken our first love of Him, and we don't love each other, then what does all of this stuff mean? The greatest apologetic, the greatest thing that we have to offer to people to come to Mission Church are two things. One, Jesus. The second thing is, is man, we are going to love you to death. We want to be in community with you. We want to know what's really going on in your life. I wonder, um, even after I've been thinking about these things over the last several days of listening to her, could a, a lesbian, a, a gay person, a transgender person, a bisexual person, could they come here to this church and be offended by what the Bible says and not be offended because we're jerks to them? Do you see the difference? All right. If you get offended from the preaching and teaching or something that happens in a missional community group, man, I pray that, it's, that you're offended because this is what the Bible says. Not because somebody was unloving to you or a jerk to you or unfriendly to you. Okay? But I pray that we're a church that's filled with that. That we can become that congregation. That we are self sacrificing opening of our doors to the ragamuffins the strugglers the swinders the rebellious and the religious we will give up our personal preference to not just tolerate them but to invite them into your home and into your life for the sake of the gospel. That's what I pray for us. That's what I long to be a part of those things. If we continue on here, it says this, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build them up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's Psalm 69 if you want to know what that's a quote from. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we had the kind of purpose of servants to bring service to bring us unity, but we also have um, this point of service. And what is the point of us serving one another? To be like Jesus. To be conformed to the image and the person and work of Jesus. It's interesting Paul breaks into. Do this. Why? Because this is what Jesus does. He is the King of Kings. Pre-incarnation. Do you get that? He is the Lord of Lords. Literally, it was Jesus who is the creator, the New Testament tells us, of all things. That happens pre-incarnation, pre-Bethlehem, pre-cross, pre-resurrection. And yet, what does He do? He humbles Himself as a servant, as a peasant man, as a homeless man, going from place to place, spreading, calling people to repentance and to follow after Him. And He will ultimately walk a horrific road carrying a, a used cross naked through the center of town to be crucified upon it, bearing the sins of the world. I can think of no greater service. This is our responsibility. It is the ladies and gentlemen, this is the desire of the Christian heart. Is to be like Jesus. If you don't want to be like Jesus, you're not a Christian. We miss the point. And if there are areas, brothers and sisters in Christ, where you're struggling to be like Jesus in them, lay them down. Confess them. Lay them down. And repent. And follow after Jesus. This is the picture that we see. Is that we, the ultimate goal of laying down your life for the weaker brother and sister is not primarily about you and what you get from it, but about what God gets. Jesus came to earth not to do his own will, but to do the will of God. Matthew 26.39, Hebrews 5.7, John 4.34, John 5.18.30, John 6.38. This is the picture that we see over and over and over again. Jesus is saying, I didn't come here to do my will. I came here to do the will of God. And yet many of us are still struggling with that. I mean, I struggle with that. I want to do my will every day. I'm cool with Jesus. Discipleship for me is, hey Jesus, I'm going to do this. Why don't you follow me while I'm doing it? Right? Yet the call of the gospel is, Jesus says, I'm going here. You follow me to this place. Laying down our lives in the conformity of Jesus will unite us. It will cause us to love God and to love others even more. I love Philippians, don't you? Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 through 11 says this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one of, of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Preach that in our culture. Everybody look around. We're going to go charismatic. Just move our necks. Look around here. 
All those people that you see with your own eyes are more important than you. What they want is more important than what you want. As long as it's reflected now, you know, they're wanting to do math. It's not. But in regards to our relationship with God, what they desire, what they long for, even their personal preferences, you should be willing to outdo them in laying down what you want. Man, that's the kind of marriage I want to be a part of. That's the kind of community that I want to be a part of. That's the kind of friendships that I want to have. It's ones that are conformed to the person and work of Jesus in so much, it's what can I do to serve you with anything that I have. My time, talent, or treasure. It says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interests of others. Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. God the Father. All of this, as the Bible is telling us here, all of the Old Testament, look at this passage here where it says, um, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction and through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What Scriptures is he talking about? The Old Testament. Did y'all know that there's a first half to this book? Laura and I have been reading through the Bible this year. And before you get some picture of us huddled up in a prayer circle in a closet holding each other's hands, singing Kumbaya with candles lit and reading each other the Bible, that's not what happens. I know that was the image you had. But simply, she has the document and it tells us every day, this is what you read. How many chapters? All right, right now we're reading through the Bible chronologically. She does it on her time. I do it on my time, but we have text or verbal conversations about it through the day. And we found that's the healthiest thing for us to do. Because anytime I try to pastor my wife, <laughs> all right? <laughs> but this has opened up great conversations for us, all right? Because the Bible is telling us here, now Peter will go on later to say in Peter that whatever Paul writes is Scripture, all right? So I'm not saying that the New Testament isn't Scripture, but specifically during this context and time period, the point that he is talking about is he is talking about the Old Testament. And what does Paul say that all the Old Testament points to? Christ! And what is the good of it pointing to Christ? For our encouragement, our instruction, and our hope is found in the Old Testament. Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, all of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. Now, when Laura and I have been reading these sorts of things, there are lots of crazy stories in the Old Testament. Many of them I still struggle with. I do not understand. Alright? But Jesus is on every page of it. And not in some obscure way, because there are some brothers and sisters in Christ who have been doing this lately. They'll read stories, like we're reading through Jacob and Esau right now. If you've learned the story of Jacob and Esau, they're twins, right? There's this major conflict between them. 
But the Bible tells us that Esau comes out of the womb and it's like a monkey. Alright? It says his body is covered in hair. Alright? How'd you like that, mama? Alright? You've just given birth to an orangutan. This sucker is covered in hair. Now some people like to really obscure this idea of Jesus being on every page and they'll go, well, Jesus had hair. And He covers us. Alright? I mean, that's crazy. But every scripture, every word is an illusion because if you read more about that story, you will quickly realize that it is all pointing toward the need of grace and God's mercy even on His chosen men and women that will do crazy... I mean, Jacob, I love, Esau I hated, right? Jacob slept with more women, alright? Crazy! And yet what? He was God's man. Alright? And God didn't condone him doing that. But it shows all of the issues and the problems that even arose from his children in those issues. And how that you can't fall in love with an early, earthly leader. But Jesus is the true and better Jacob. It all points to Jesus. It all points to the person and work of Jesus. Have you been reading your word? It's your pastor. I'm deeply concerned. I desire, I, because I believe that Scripture tells us it is good for this. It's all pointing towards Jesus. It's all for our instruction. It's for our endurance. It's for our encouragement that we might have Hope And where do we get that from? From Jesus. How do we know it's from Jesus? It's from knowing this Word. Now, here's the thing. is that I don't want to guilt you this morning. Because I know the answer for most of you. And guilt isn't something that we can negotiate. Because here's what I know. We are guilty. But guilt often doesn't lead to change. Conviction is. I don't want to guilt you because of what you're not doing. But in hope, I want you to be a person of the Word. Why? Because of one of our hopes this year. I want you to be in awe of God. And I believe wholeheartedly when you dive into this with a microscope, looking at these things and what it reveals, you see a bigger picture of God. Your hope, your security, your encouragement will all be found even in those random passages of, you know, go home and read Ezekiel 23.20. I can't read it in here because I would be embarrassed. Really obscure passage there, a story. And yet, that story as a whole reflects Jesus and points toward the person and work of Jesus. All of it. For your instruction, for your endurance, for your encouragement. I don't want you to worship this book, but I do want you to worship God in spirit and in truth. I love it when John Piper says, when you memorize Scripture, you're memorizing the mind of God. Why is it important to know this Word? It's because all of Scripture points to Jesus. Now, um, there was a time in my life when I was a helpless romantic and um, because of sin, Satan, and death in my own life, I'm not that. And I apologize to my wife because of it. 
But this week, I have kept all of the letters that Laura wrote me when we were dating. And she kept the ones that I wrote her. And they're in this book. And this week, I was reading over these letters and thinking how silly a lot of them were, but also how amazing they were. The encouragement that Laura gave me, the hope that Laura gave me. Even when we were dating, we dated for three and a half years and we never told each other that we loved each other until I asked her to marry me. So we had this boundary in our relationship where it said, um, we can only say, well, I like you, see you later. Because we didn't want to use the term love and it not be real. And so all throughout these, there's the statement, I like you, Laura. I like you, Eric. And just her talking about me and encouraging me. We spent months and months apart in some of our relationships because I was on a mission trip uh, with Cambridge Crusade for Christ. And there are other times we were, you know, miles and miles away. And yet every day I got a letter typically from Laura when I was away from her. Now when you get a love letter, and it's typically if a girl wrote it, it's folded up into origami. It takes a, you know, a jackhammer to open the thing for us dudes. But when you got a love letter growing up, did you just like, I'll read that in a few days? Did anybody do that? It's okay, girls. We know what you did. I don't need to be excused. <laughs> or it's like, remember those kind? This said something to me. All right, or the football kind. Or, but, that, I mean, when you got a love letter, the world stopped, didn't it? You were hoping the teacher didn't see it? Check the box, yes or no, if you like me. No maybes. Right? Why? You wanted to know what it said. You know the reason why a lot of us aren't daily engaging in the Word? It's we don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And we don't see this as His love to us. We see it as a textbook to learn about instead of a person to build a relationship with. May it stop. May it stop in you. May it stop in me. Did you know that a person who is starving to death loses their appetite? They stop being hungry. And the only way to trigger that again inside of them is for them to eat. I think that's what's happened to a lot of us as believers in Jesus. We've gotten out of the practice of daily engaging with God. And the only way to change that, I believe, is, is through prayer and through force feeding this to the point where you realize once again how amazing it is. How loving it is. How this is God's love letter to His people revealing Himself, showing us His glory. And we desire to, to desire it and devour it and to long over it, to write through it and to study it and to wrestle with it. I mean, it should be no circumstance. How many of you guys, whenever you sit down to pray or to read the Bible, 
you become a squirrel. I mean, you're thinking about everything other than God, Jesus, and what's going on. You'll read it and you'll have to read it again. Let us be awakened. That is sin, Satan, and death. Does sin, Satan, and death want you reading the Scripture? No. It doesn't. It wants you focused on you. It wants you focused on your agenda. It wants you focused on what you've got to do that day. If you want to be a better husband, then the greatest point in your day is your quiet time with the Lord. If you want to be a better spouse, better wife, the, the best thing to do, to be that, the best thing you can do is devote yourself at some point in that day to the personal work of Jesus. If you want to be a better single, a better co-worker, a better grandparent, a better aunt, a better uncle, just a better person in general, then that time that you spend in God's Word. It was interesting hearing Rosaria Butterfield because before she was a Christian, she spent five hours a day reading the Bible thinking it was a joke. We haven't read the Bible five hours in three years, many of us. And yet it was through that daily devouring of that word, he got her. Isn't that awesome? He snagged her, just ripped her apart, wrecked her life. And now she's enduring persecution. There are protesters there, hate mail. People, even somebody stood up and said, all my friends think that you've made up this story just to promote your Christian agenda. That you never were a lesbian. Why? Because she now stands up and says, man, Jesus, I'm going to love the homosexual and I love Jesus. I'm going to love both of them. Is it sin? Yes, it's sin. But I'm a sinner. Jesus saves sinners. And the church needs to be that place where it's open to all kinds of sinners, whatever it is, so that they can be changed. Sin, Satan, death. All of these things cause disunity when we get away from serving one another, when we get away from the Scripture. So in closing, let me share one quick story with you and then we will be done. The year was 1929. This is a true story, not a sermon illustration. You've got to learn the difference. All right? The year was 1929. It was the Rose Bowl, Bowl and uh, this is California, made it to the championship that year, and Georgia Tech. All right? And many of you probably have never heard this story unless you're an ESPN junkie. But when you, in this, it's been known as one of the greatest games in college football. And there was a, a person, a player, um, named Roy Regal who played for um, the California Golden Bears. He was an All-American. His coach says he was the smartest player uh, on his team. And so before the second half, um, they go to line up and he played what we would now call like a middle linebacker. And there was this, a defensive play and the ball popped out of the offensive hands and tumbles right on the ground in front of Roy Regal. Roy runs over, grabs up the ball. They're 30 yards from him making a touchdown, and he takes off. He tucks the ball like he's supposed to, lowers his head, and he powers down the field with his players and colleagues chasing after him. They were going to score. 
makes it all the way to the one yard line. Only to realize that the reason why all of his players were chasing him and the crowd was screaming is that Roy got jumbled up on which direction he was supposed to be running. And he ran 65 yards to the other person's goal line before his quarterback tackled him before he went into the touchdown area. He was doing everything right. Everything they had taught him to do, he did it. Pick up the ball, run toward the end zone as hard and as passionate as you passionately can. And that's what Roy did. The problem was, was he was running in the wrong direction. Instead of taking a touchback, the, the Golden Bears decide to punt the ball. When they go to punt the ball, someone blocks it and they tackle the guy, causing a touchback, which gave them two points. The Golden Bears lost that game that day over those two points. I think the score was eight to seven. For the rest of his life, Roy Regal was known as Roy Wrong Way Regal. Later on in his life, he was, he was asked about it, and, and, and this is what he said. He said, if I had to do it again, I'd still run the same direction, for I um, correctly thought, or only thought, that I was going in the right direction. That's how convinced he was that he was doing right. And he realizes, obviously, it wasn't, but... He was so convinced in that moment that he was heading in the wrong, right direction. Is that true of you? Is that true of us? Because the calling is then is to repent and go the other way. What is the response of people serving one another? What is the response of seeing and conforming their lives to the person of Jesus. If we had time this morning, we could read through the rest of that, and Heather's already done that. But what, what takes place? Worship. Worship takes place. That is the response of true servanthood and unity and conforming to Jesus is diverse people then come together and find encouragement, but most importantly, worship an almighty God because they realize they're going in the right direction. Where are you headed? Where are we headed? I pray it is toward Jesus. If you would stand with me, let's pray.